Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Joining us today is our very own Luke Tilley, Chief Economist at Wilmington Trust. In addition to generating economic forecasts, Luke manages our tactical asset allocation team and is also a member of the Investment Committee. Luke, great to have you back. Happy to be here. Inflation is incredibly important for consumers, businesses, and financial markets. For consumers, it affects the amount they can buy with each of their paychecks. For businesses, it affects how much they can charge for their own products, and it affects their workers' demands and expectations for pay and pay increases. For financial markets, inflation has important effects on asset classes. High inflation drives up long-term interest rates and erodes the value of a bond. Lastly, it drives the interest rate decisions made by central banks, in the U.S. case, the Federal Reserve. So the reason we're having this conversation is because by understanding inflation, we are able to hopefully do a much more accurate job in predicting the future value and direction of stock prices and bond prices. Luke, we know the recession pushed inflation down, as it tends to do in recessions, and we know it has come back a little bit in the second half of the year. Our current expectations are for low inflation in the near term, but there is risk of some accelerating inflation after we find our way out of this pandemic. Maybe the place to start again, Luke, is to talk about how we arrived at our current view of inflation. Yeah, Tony, we, we definitely think about it in terms of timing, as you said, sort of in the near term and then the longer term. Um, when I say the near term, we're thinking about the next nine to 12 months, uh, which works out to that timing that you're talking about with the vaccines and when we would expect uh, the vast majority of people to be vaccinated or at least enough that we've stopped the spread. Um, and also, so you said there's a lot of things that affect inflation. It's the business cost of inputs. Uh, one of those inputs is wages, of course, and also the, the cost of their material goods. And we know that that obviously affects inflation. We see a lot of stories right now about the prices of some goods moving up pretty sharply while others are still low. A lot of that is coming from supply chain problems, and those are definitely near-term phenomenon that we would expect to uh, improve. Um, but the overriding factor that we think about is consumer spending and consumer demand. So this is a little bit of a different picture. Um, consumer spending has picked up over the course of the recovery in 2020, and a lot of that has to do with fiscal stimulus, and we do expect another round of fiscal stimulus. But when we look a little bit further out, we look over the entire nine to 12 month period, uh, we do expect that even when we get past the stimulus, that there's still gonna be some weakness in terms of uh, jobs, not everybody having returned to work. So we have had that very encouraging bounce back, but ultimately uh, I think we'll get our economy back to a more normal place over that nine to 12 month period. But to the extent that we have uh, consumers facing a little bit of different decisions about how they spend their money, some of that weakness for jobs, still some uncertainty, that's where we arrive at our view that consumer demand and spending is really not gonna be strong enough uh, to bring about very strong inflation in the near term, Tony. So Luke, I wanna make sure that the listeners understand that inflation is like many things where essentially the price of a particular good or service is set by supply versus demand. There's a balance of supply and demand. And there's a price at which, a clearing price at which a product or service trades hands. 
And so I think what you're describing is that even as we come out of the pandemic, there's still not going to be enough demand to push prices up fast enough to be concerned about inflation. Inflation, of course, really just being how fast prices are moving either up or down. Yeah, yeah, you do have it right. And I think when people see prices in front of them, right in front of their eyes, uh, going up or going down, like, oh, bacon costs a lot at the store today, or the cost of cars is really moving up. Those are supply and demand curves as you uh, describe them. Not each one of those is inflation. Uh, price of bacon can go up because there's a shortage of hogs for some reason, or cars can change because of regulation or the quality of the car or a shortage. And those are all, if you will, and as you described, individual supply and demand curves. When we talk about inflation, it's not those prices of the things, just the ones that you see going up in front of you. It's the overall price of goods and an increase in the overall uh, price level that consumers face on their all of their spending. Uh, and so in that way, what we're seeing right now is a lot of uh, switching between some types of goods and others, spending a lot on uh, goods we've seen over the course of this year. Uh, the demand curves for new dishwashers and backyard swimming pools and treadmills and decking materials all go up significantly because we're in a pandemic. Um, but the demand curves for a lot of services have gone down uh, for the exact same reasons because we're in a pandemic. And when you sum those all together, if you will, if you you know add up all the prices of everything, what we see is in the aggregate. Uh, lower demand and, and basically getting to that lower inflation outlook in the short term, Tony. So, Luke, you referenced a distinction that I think is an important one, which is goods versus services. And I know that when we look at retail consumption or retail spending and consumption of, of goods, it's been off the charts this year. Whereas services, whether it be hotels, leisure, travel, have been very, very soft for the reasons that we all know. I would expect, therefore, that you'd see significant inflation in the goods arena and then the negative of that. I don't know if the word is deflation, but you'd see prices dropping in the services arena. Is that what we've seen? Yes, it is what we've seen. And it's a a market difference from what we have seen over time. We have spent uh, many, many years, uh, you know, at least a decade, where for the most part, goods prices have been in decline, deflation, uh, as you suggest, while services were really what were driving inflation and keeping it above uh, zero and keeping it you know, around the two to two and a half percent mark. Uh, and that has switched in this pandemic where the prices for services are not increasing as much. Uh, it's kind of a uh, silly sounding word, but disinflation is when you have the, the slower inflation or it's moving down, but it hasn't actually moved to decreasing prices, uh, while the cost of goods have seen stronger inflation. So it's been a, a flip, uh, as you suggest, in a way that we haven't seen for a long time and is easily traced back to the, to the contours of the pandemic and its effects. So if I think about, for example, Luke, this coming holiday season, would you expect that there'll be shortages of many kinds of goods that people are going to want to essentially give as gifts or consume? I'm pretty much a perennial last-minute gift acquirer. <laughs> um, should I be going out now to, to make sure that I find some things before maybe even prices go up? Or how should I be thinking about that? There are certainly some issues with supply chains and getting a lot of things filled. And yes, I do think that the prices of uh, goods will be uh, higher. You won't see uh, as many deals relatively there. 
Uh, if you're the kind of person who gives gift certificates for services at a salon, however, you might get a pretty good price right now. Um, but but the, the other part of it is clearly there's a lot of uncertainty, especially in the near term about the very near term over the one, two and three month period about what's going to happen with jobs and consumer spending and, and stimulus. So there are a lot of retailers out there trying to get their, their sales in right now. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, and I think at the end of it, uh, people close to you would appreciate it if I said, yes, definitely go out and do your shopping now. <laughs> OK, um, thanks. So I'll, I'll try to do that. Let me just dig further, though, on the idea that with the pandemic hopefully coming to a conclusion in the first half of next year, that we wouldn't see a bigger jump in overall inflation. And I think that we're somewhat representative that we have this big pent up demand to go on trips. And I know that there's probably going to be um, an absence of a pickup in business demand compared to personal demand, relatively speaking. What makes you so confident that when we get through the pandemic, that you wouldn't continue to see strong consumption for goods, but also a big increase in the demand on the services side, so that when you put it all together, you could have an inflation surprise the second half of next year? There's a couple of parts of that, that answer. Um, and, and first and, and foremost is that the run-up in goods prices that we've seen over the course of this year is not likely to be extended. We did see that ramp up in some of those things that I named, um, like backyard swimming pools and decks and, and treadmills that are uh, fortifying your home for the, for the quarantine environment uh, while we've had the weaker uh, spending on services. If you get a uh, rotation of consumer spending, not the not the financial market rotation that we often talk about, but the the uh, consumer spending rotation from those goods and into uh, the services, then we would expect to see both of those things moderating. You get some slowdown in the prices of goods, a little bit of an acceleration in the prices of services, and they would come together to make a a more balanced uh, progression for inflation. But then ultimately, our expectation that there's not going to be as many jobs that will still be uh, clawing back uh, some of those jobs means weaker demand once fiscal stimulus is done. But, you know, to the thrust of your question, the risk would be if uh, the vaccines work uh, incredibly well, not just in getting people vaccinated, but also in uh, stemming some of the large structural changes. And you've got a lot of people going back to work and pretty close to normal in mid to late uh, next year, uh, then you would have that higher risk of, of higher inflation, as you suggest. But our baseline is that there will still be having some weak demand, um, and then inflation will not be uh, running very high next year. One of the ideas I wanted to bring into the conversation um, is I love the jargon and terminology that you economists use. There are terms such as cost push inflation and demand pull inflation. and well, I think what we're talking about right now is a demand-driven inflation. So this idea of demand-pull inflation, where if, in fact, we have a really dynamic rise out of the pandemic from an economic activity standpoint, that perhaps there'd be too much demand for the amount of goods or services that are available. So it'd be a demand-pull type of inflation. And how does that compare to the overall inflation environment that we've been on? over the last decade. I know that there have been some periods where we've had this massive inflation like the 70s, and then there have been periods where we've been, it's been very hard to generate inflation for the last 10 years or so. 
And I, it, it sort of feels like if that were to occur, it would be a real break from where, where we've been over the last decade. So I'd love to sort of continue to explore this idea of whether or not the end of the pandemic could be a welcome surprise in creating some more inflation. So it could be a welcome surprise. And I think the way we need to think about it is exactly as you described. You know, is it is it demand pull or is it cost push? And what, what are these uh, dynamics that are going on? Um, and I hope you'll indulge me just for a moment to go back to absolute basics on where does inflation come from? Absolutely. If you just think about sort of like a silly example, and it's a simple economy with 100 goods that are produced and consumed every year, and you've got $100 in that economy, and they're spent on those 100 things. Uh, These are identical items. Everybody buys one of them. Importantly, there's no productive growth in the economy. The economy doesn't grow, and there's no money growth. Well, then you've just got a stagnant economy with zero inflation. And then where inflation comes from, you know, just silly example is say, let's say you wake up one morning and there's twice as much money in the economy because the Fed dumped a bunch of money into into people's hands. Well, they want to go out and they want to buy two of those things instead of one and quickly find out that that everybody's got uh, double the money and that would drive the price level twice as high. You would just have inflation, but you haven't had a, a change in the productive capacity of the economy. And the other way would be to say, well, what if the productive capacity of the economy doubled, but the money didn't change? Well, then you'd actually have deflation. So uh, essentially what I'm saying here is inflation comes from the differential in the growth between the productive capacity of the economy and the amount of money in the economy and sort of that spending. So to get to the question of cost push versus demand pull, what you really have to be thinking about is has the economy over 2020 and into 2021, have we really changed the productive capacity of the economy? And there are a couple of different views that you could take here. One would be that we had a recession. A lot of people were sent home and everything's going to come back online and we're back to where we were. Uh, And there hasn't been really a change to the productive capacity of the economy, but you have had a lot of uh, dollars sort of dumped into it by the by the fiscal uh, authorities that have dumped money in. And that would bring about uh, some inflation and a little bit uh, that would bring in, you know, some inflation and a little bit of a return to normal. But if we've had, if, if you're going to go and you get to sort of the end of the pandemic and everybody's had their, their vaccines uh, and everybody's going to sort of return to, quote, normal behavior, if you think that there are is some structural damage to the economy in the sense that, well, there's a change in how often people are going to the office. There's a change in the number of people who are actually going to go to movie theaters or restaurants and all of those uh, all of those types of things. Where you get at the end of that is you've changed the productive capacity of the economy in the sense that some capital is not really usable anymore. It's sort of been taken out of the system and, and something needs to be done with that. And you also have a lot of these people with uh, dollars and stimulus that has been spent. So when we think about getting to the end of next year, if there has been a lot of dollars that have flowed into households uh, spending ability, um, but you've also had a massive change in the way that people spend them, you can have those relative changes going on. Um, but it's not quite the same thing as a return to normal where you would get that higher inflation. So there are a lot of moving parts there, but ultimately where we end up with our assessment 
is that there's going to be enough structural changes, there's going to be enough job losses that we do have that risk of higher inflation if uh, people go back to, to spending as normal. But it's going to be a very different economy. Uh, and because there's a lot of people who have lost their jobs and simply don't have the dollars, you get that that overriding impact. So, yes, it's it's cost push and it's demand pull. Uh, but there are, there are a significant number of changes there that we're just not returning to normal, Tony. So let's move forward and talk about the impact of what I would describe as very benign inflation right now, which is it enables the Fed to try to help to support the economy during this very challenging economic period by being extremely accommodative. Can you explain how that works and what that means for us, please? So just through that framework that I was just talking about, what the Fed is really concerned about are a couple of things. One, the productive capacity of the economy. There's a risk that uh, we have decreased the overall productive abilities of the economy because of what's going to happen to capital. And then also because of job loss, if there's significant permanent job loss. On top of that, the Fed is viewing past periods where uh, especially over the previous recovery, where they had an operating um, strategy, a long-run goals strategy, that said, we're going to try and target 2% inflation uh, over the longer term, which means if inflation fell below 2%, then they would try and keep interest rates low enough and entice enough economic activity that it would start moving back towards 2 And then they would start raising interest rates in order to uh, move towards that 2% and then stop there and try and get the economy to to stop right at that 2% run rate of inflation. The change that they made earlier this year, uh, late August, was a fairly substantial change to the way that they say that they approach inflation. And it was basically that they're going to wait longer before the first rate hike, and they want inflation to run higher than 2% for some time and then bring it back down uh, to the 2% target. And essentially what that means is they're trying to tell uh, consumers, they're trying to tell businesses, uh, they're trying to tell financial markets, when you see the economy improving and inflation heading up, don't get concerned that we're gonna start hiking rates right away. We're actually gonna wait. And the impact that they're hoping to have there is uh, multifold. They want they want businesses to keep investing to increase that productive capacity, and they also don't want financial markets to start pricing in. Oh, here comes the Fed. We know that they're going to start hiking rates and 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 uh, and stop uh, what is sort of an early recovery. So what their idea is to try and get, and, and they've actually stated explicitly, we will not even consider hiking rates until inflation crosses the two percent mark. Uh, so it's, it all boils into them waiting a little bit longer, Tony, uh, before they start those those rate hikes. So the the fact that they're able to keep rates so low is because inflation is so low. And it's so important for us as investors because it means that, relatively speaking, equities are more attractive than bonds. And it's one of the fundamental pillars that has been supporting the equity market, which, again, is that with very, very low rates, Bonds are very unattractive because they provide very little return from an income standpoint. As one foresees rates potentially moving up, that would erode the value of bonds that are currently outstanding. 
And so there's an acronym, TINA, which stands for there is no alternative. And that essentially denotes the flow of capital into the stock market because bonds, which is the other typical destination for capital, are so unattractive right now. And what you're describing, Luke, which is the significant reticence of the Fed to raise rates is so important to us as investors because the stock market continues to benefit, not just from the fact of low rates, but the expectation that rates will stay low. When we think about the relationship between interest rates and inflation, we often think about the idea that as inflation moves up, interest rates tend to move up as well, given the expectation that the Fed would have to raise rates in order to slow down the economy and keep a lid on prices. But in fact, the market is as concerned around expectations for inflation as it is around inflation itself. So I was hoping that you could give us a bit of a primer, if you will, on inflation expectations and how they come into the picture as well. And this is critically important, as you say. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to drag you back to my simple example. If you think about you know, the, the, the economy and the productive capacity growing at some percentage each year and the Fed needs to grow um, the money supply each year so that you can get inflation to hit a certain target, if they wanted to just match the two of them and match money growth to the growth of the economy, that would be shooting for 0% inflation. But the Fed has decided not to do that for various reasons. They think it's better to have a little bit higher growth rate. And they basically said, okay, whatever the economy is going to grow at, we're going to add 2% to that. And we're going to grow the money supply 2% faster than the economy can grow. And there are some advantages to that. The expectations component is incredibly important here, uh, as you say, Tony, because that's the expectation that they want firms and consumers to have, is that they can count on roughly 2% inflation. Now, it can also go badly if they don't manage that. In the 1970s, is an ex excellent example of this, where uh, they were putting way too much money into the economy for a decade, and consumers and businesses built in those expectations, and it was this uh, this vicious bad cycle where inflation just kept moving up. Uh, everybody was counting on that to keep happening in the future. And importantly, as you suggest, that drove up long-term interest rates uh, higher until uh, the famous Paul Volcker coming in and, and breaking the back of inflation. So what does that mean for the current environment and going forward? The Fed, as we were just discussing, has said, well, we want some higher inflation in the short term, and we're going to wait until it moves over 2% before we even start hiking. Uh, and they're trying to, you know, as, as we said, keep firms borrowing, get financial markets not to overreact if, uh, if we start getting close to it. But importantly, those inflation expectations, if, you, if we get into the year 2022 and 2023, whenever it is that inflation crosses the 2% barrier and the Fed is thinking about hiking, what, what really matters to them is, okay, we see inflation of 2.5% and markets and consumers and businesses are expecting long-term inflation to come back down to 2 and we're going to sort of raise rates and, and tamp that back down and meet those expectations. That's a very different situation from current inflation running above two and hitting that two and a half percent. But then uh, firms and businesses and financial markets 
think that they're never going to bring it back down and they start pricing in four or five or six percent inflation. And that's the risk. That's their that's their real fear is that if they let those expectations of inflation start to run higher, that's where you get the very unhealthy rise in long term interest rates. It seems somewhat counterintuitive, this recent change that they've made in August, because by them saying that they're going to allow inflation to run higher than 2% for longer in order to make up for the period of time in which they allowed it to run lower than 2%, I would think that would have to increase expectations for inflation because it means rates are going to stay lower for longer. And it seems to be accomplishing, in a sense, the exact opposite of what they want to do, which is manage inflation lower so they can keep rates down. So it seems to be a little of a, of a chicken and the egg situation or, or a vicious circle, if you will, from the Fed's perspective, that on the one hand, they want to message to the market that they're going to keep rates as low as possible for as long as possible to support the recovery. But they're very, the very fact of them doing that is going to push expectations for inflation up higher because rates will be lower. It's a tough little dance to achieve here. And you just think about the previous recovery and what was so challenging. Uh, inflation never really moved very significantly higher. And that's because the Fed had built in an expectation over decades that they would never let inflation really run significantly above two. The challenge that that presented for them was low long-term rates, U.S. Treasury 10-year yield. Um, it, it basically kept trending lower, never really moved up that significantly higher. And it gave them very little room to operate monetary policy. So exactly as you suggest, they want to convince markets that they'll let inflation run a little higher. They're hoping for the long-term treasury rate, not next year or um, the year after. They don't want long-term rates to move significantly higher, but they want their new equilibrium to be somewhat higher long-term interest rates and a little bit of a steeper curve. However, like you say, they cannot let those expectations run away from them because that would be damaging for uh, everybody, the economy, markets, um, the Fed, everybody. And that's, that's, a, that's a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah, it really is indeed. And it has such an important impact on investments due to the relationship that we just discussed between interest rates and bonds and then bonds and stocks. And unfortunately, we're probably going to have to leave it at that for today, Luke. But it's been a great conversation. And thank you so much for helping to provide some of those nuts and bolts to make us better investors. Let me summarize, as I always do, what I think some of the key takeaways are for today. First is that inflation really is one of the most important economic drivers in understanding the performance of the economy and investments. It affects consumers, businesses, and financial markets in different ways. And especially when actual inflation deviates from what the markets expected inflation to be, the impact on interest rates, both directly and vis-a-vis the Fed and the decisions the Fed is required to make in order to manage the economy, and the consequent change in prices of bonds and equities can be pretty stark and generate large impacts on portfolios. And for that reason, we spend a lot of time thinking about inflation, and we're particularly focused on inflation right now to understand what the trajectory may be as we come out of this horrible pandemic and recession that that we've been in. So that's the first takeaway. The second is that at this moment, there's really two reasons that interest rates are so low. One is the monetary stimulus that the Fed has engaged in keeping policy rate very, very low, directly, therefore, keeping the front end of the yield curve very low, but also inflation itself. 
And inflation itself being as low as it has been is what enables the Fed to keep its policy rate so low. And this, in fact, has been one of the main pillars, as I've said, in helping the equity market. And we continue to expect the Fed to be very accommodative and to continue to help the equity market in this way, overcoming counter quarters. Thirdly, though, we would say that we maintain somewhat circumspect around the outlook for inflation and inflation expectations. And we are keeping a very close eye on this balance of consumption of goods and services, this idea of pull inflation, if you will, as we get out of the pandemic and move into a healthier, more vibrant economic environment and see whether or not stronger consumption on the services side is counteracted by the continuing overhang from the crisis in the form of permanent job losses and other headwinds, if you will, to consumption and ultimately prices, or whether, in fact, those issues in the economy write themselves faster than, than expected, which would lead to higher inflation than inflation expectations and would cause the Fed to have to raise rates faster than we currently do expect now and would have a negative impact potentially on stocks, reversing some of the tailwind, if you will, that's been created over the last uh, number of calendar quarters since the pandemic set in. So those are the, the, the key takeaways for today, and we will continue to watch all of this for you, for our clients here at Wilmington Trust. Luke, thank you. You've been a terrific co-pilot, as always, in these conversations. Happy to be here. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of 
or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.